Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. I'm excited to share a new series that we're doing. It's a partnership with Adventist Peace Fellowship and Signs Publishing in Australia. It's focused on a book that recently came out called A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism, and it was edited by Mari D. Jackson and Nathan Brown, both names familiar to many in the Spectrum community. Mari Jackson is chair of the Pastoral Studies Department and associate professor of practical theology for the HMS Richards Divinity School at La Sierra. And Nathan Brown is book editor at Signs Publishing Company, a Seventh-day Adventist publishing house for the South Pacific. He hails from Australia. The two of them have put together a really great book full of writers who are also familiar to the Spectrum community, and um, their partner in this podcast project is Lisa Diller, who's co-director of the Adventist Peace Fellowship and a very active history professor at Southern Adventist University. So what I've done is basically say that we would love to release their podcast through our Adventist Voices channel. And so on and off for the next couple of months, their conversations with the writers in the House on Fire book will uh, come to you through your usual podcast listening app, whatever you've got there. And uh, I'm just honored to help uh, play a small role in hosting this conversation and getting it out to as many folks as possible. Thank you for listening. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices. My name is Nathan Brown and we're beginning a new series, a new podcast series, uh, exploring the book A House on Fire. As I said, my name's Nathan Brown. I'm a book editor by profession and I'm one of the co-editors of A House on Fire, which was published late 2022. Uh, with me, at the kicking off this series, I have my co-editor of the book, Dr. Maury Jackson. Dr. Jackson is the Associate Professor of Practical Theology at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. Welcome, Maury. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you so much. Also joining us for this conversation today, we have Dr. Lisa Clark Diller from Southern Adventist University, Professor of History. Uh, but also a co-convener of the Adventist Peace Fellowship. So we are grateful to Adventist Peace Fellowship and particularly Adventist Peace Radio Podcast and Spectrum and their podcast Adventist Voices for uh, hosting this special series. And it will be just a, it's one of those podcasts where you start with the premise that we aren't going to talk forever. So you just join the conversation and uh, share in that for a little while. And uh, then we won't continue to uh, flood your stream. So thank you for both of those podcast streams for hosting us and for sharing uh, what will be a series of conversations with the various contributors to the book, uh, A House on Fire. So Lisa, you've joined us as as an endorser of the book. Thank you for that. But also as a someone who was outside the project. And uh, so thank you for joining us and for your kind of outside perspective of joining in this conversation, initially simply about the background of this, the genesis of this project and the background to the book and some of the big ideas, I guess, in it. Yeah, that's it's very exciting to get to be here with the two of you after spending some time with the book. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about what your thoughts are on that. So thanks for letting me join in. And uh, it's very dangerous to promise that I won't go on forever. Um, as my <laughs> students well know, Nathan, um, you you kind of made some promises there that I had not co-signed on that we would not go on for a really long time. <laughs> well, I also reserved the right to edit to you. So, you know. Ah, there you go. Oh, so there's some safety. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> That's cool. 
I'm always better with Nathan Brown editing. I can tell you that. Like all of my writing has been better. So maybe my speaking will be too. Uh, me as well. <laughs> cool. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So as a starting point, Lisa, you read, you were one of the pre-readers for the book before its launch, uh, thus your endorsement that appears somewhere on the inside of the, the, the early pages of the book. Yeah, um, what, were your, what was your first thoughts as someone who hadn't been involved in the process and then you heard about the book? You know, mm. How did you respond to the idea of the book? Well, I responded because I, I look at books um, the way academics look at books, Nathan, which is I first look at who printed them, who the authors all are, what kind of sources they're doing. I don't even know what the argument is yet. But my first response was like, wow, this is an amazing group of people to bring together. And I mean, I didn't know who everyone was quite clearly. I had to look up some people. I was really blown away by the collection of authors. Um, so that was my first impression before I, I thought that I was, I was automatically already interested in the topic. But um, and and assumed that there would be provocative and convicting um, and encouraging things in it that um, that I needed to read, and that was indeed true. And the range of ways of getting at the topics um, of, of race and the Adventist Church, I really appreciated the different disciplines that were there, the different cultural perspectives. And um, the you know different writing styles, editing a collection, as you know, um, I have my students do book reviews sometimes in some of my classes. And when they review an edited collection, it's always a little uneven is the word that I teach them to use. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't get a sense of the voice of the people. But that's what's exciting about this one is that there's there are all these different voices. And that really strengthens, I think, um, the book. Hmm. That's cool. And you did send me a, a photo a little while ago, Lisa, of your, I think it was your mum. Uh, oh, yeah. My mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have it around. I have multiple. Yeah. I had a, an advanced copy of it, um, you know, I, that was that was mailed to me and I was reading some sections of it. And I think I mentioned it. my mom picked it up. She likes to read almost anything you know, kind of around wants to look at it. And she started picking up and she was like, this is a really, really good, right? This is, where did you get this? You know, like what is happening here? She was very, very, very um, impressed and it would occasionally pause and read things. I don't know that she actually, she was only visiting. I don't think she actually read the whole book, but she was able to sort of dip in and was just, you know, who are these people and what, you know, where are they? Is this okay? Are people reading this? Do people know about this? You know, that was kind of her, her impression. Yeah. So that's our ultimate review, Maury. Lisa's mum likes it. I, I'm, I'm excited <laughs> yeah. by that. I, I am. It's and humbled. Yeah. And humbled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I brought it when I was preaching, um, in January, yeah, late January, I was preaching and um, I brought it with me. I don't remember why I had it as an, an illustration along with several other things that I had up front. And several people um, after church told me they would like for us to have a kind of a short term Sabbath school discussion kind of around it, you know, mm -hmm. like almost like a book club for Sabbath school in the mornings. So that's probably going to happen at my church. Um, as well. But we did the curriculum that I know all of Hemings and others were involved with for Black History Month um, mm -hmm. for the Sabbath school quarterly um, kind of thing. We did that as a special Sabbath school in February. So I'm taking Women's History Month off a little bit here too. And then we'll we'll kick back up with a house on fire. Oh, very cool. That's beautiful. So and I'm interested for you guys, like how was it how was it finding the title? that's quite a title like um was that hard work who comes up with the titles and um yeah tell me about the title well i nathan i'll i'll, I'll take a first start at it i think we were playing with section titles and 
at initially we were thinking of titles like for different sections a house of cards playing the race card we had a house uh the house of god come you know uh how to become beth l or something like that we had all these and and one was a uh, house of fires we thought of of some of the hot issues but i think if my recollection serves me when we got Janice DeWhite's chapter on Burning Bethel, uh, House of Fire mm. just kind of emerged mm. as this is this is mm. this is where we should go. And then Nathan mm. did a wonderful job just going into the the works of James Cone and James Baldwin and and really uh, setting it up. Mm. That's cool. That's great. Yeah, certainly an influence there was James Baldwin and his uh, Fire Next Time. And, you know, he's got a couple of statements there that mm -hmm. reference, you know, even, you know, who would, you know, I, and I think it's in the epigraph of the book is the, you know, who would want to be mm -hmm. well adjusted in a house that's on fire or integrated into a house that's on fire. Mm -hmm. And, and, and mm -hmm. even the larger motif mm -hmm. that he's got in the Fire Next Time of the, you know, it was the flood, you know, in the time of Noah. But you know, unless mm -hmm. we, unless we smarten up our act, unless we we can step forward as humanity, it'll mm -hmm. be the fire next time. And so, and then a number of, I think, a number of our contributors kind of responded to the image of the house on fire as they as it was being edited. And so, it does pop up just a few times through some of the chapters in the book. Uh, in different ways, in different meanings of it. And so uh, we had one of our contributors who actually pushed back on us and said, you don't actually ever define what a house on fire re references. And I said, isn't that cool that it suggests a number of different things and can be read in a number of different ways, uh, but also has a sense of the urgency around the topic and you know the, the reality that this is some this is a situation, we need to address. In fact, it, it, I'd like to just read a little from the forward where um, Reverend Dr. Matthew Burdett makes note about this. He says, the house may be on fire, but since it is God's house, we have reason to hope. God is a consuming fire. Mm. The house may be on fire, but we may take comfort knowing that like the bush in the desert, it will not be consumed. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. So, so when, if you don't mind me asking, when you, the, you know, we might in some ways, um, you know, you may have talked about this or we may plan on talking about this in another way, but I would like to know kind of as you thought about that, like at what stage A does the, title come in Nathan mentioned like people responding to it so I assume you'd already you, you didn't you didn't come up with a title before you asked all of these people to contribute so like how did I mean you I, I, I think it's putting the cart before the horse to um, ask this question before I ask how you came up how you two sort of met and decided to work together but also like how you cast the vision like what words or you know, idea or bridge did you use for collecting your contributors and for recruiting contributors? Um, if, if, is that, if that's not too personal and into the nitty gritty of the process of, of putting together a book like this. But like, you know, sometimes we do kind of think about the argument partly when we're partly through a project, but it seems like you kind of have to have a, a so what or a thesis or something in order to recruit people into it. So can you say a little bit about kind of some of that, not only your own kind of what's going to be the so what or the thesis or the framework or whatever for casting vision to collect people, but then, you know, what that what that process was putting together the list, you know, if, again, that might all be a little a little too much seeing how the sausage is made. But I'm just kind of I'm kind of interested in what you were thinking as you recruited people, if you don't mind. Probably the initial recruitment was more the subtitle than the, the title, uh, which was, you know, an Adventist response to race and racism. And basically beginning with our shared assumption or supposition 
that Adventist faith, Adventist theology, Adventist practices and culture have something meaningful to contribute to, and this goes back to the genesis of the book in the second half of 2020, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, in the context of the Black Lives Matter protests around the world. Uh, where's the Adventist voices in this context? Where And what is there uniquely within our faith and our faith community that could actually make a contribution to this wider world uh, and to this issue in the wider world? And so that was our initial brief. It was quite broad um, to a relatively small number of people, probably only a dozen people initially, uh, people that one, one or other of us at least had had conversations with on some of these topics previously. And it kind of grew a little bit organically after that of people that had conversation, you know, ongoing conversations, other people that we uh, were knew one of the contributors and said, hey, I've got something that I could contribute to that. A couple of other people who we were working on in other contexts and then you fall into that conversation. And so it kind of grew organically from perhaps that first group of about a dozen people uh, to the 20 contributors that are in the in the finished book. And of course, one of the things I had to keep telling Maury is we can't just keep adding more and more contributors uh, because at some point you've got to put a cover around this thing and you've got to call it a book and we've got to finish this at some point. Uh, so it was a two-year process mm -hmm. that was better for that process of organic growth. Uh, in many ways, we probably would have liked to have said something sooner uh, with the urgency of the topic and the currency of it in 2020. Of course, it's not out of date, sadly, uh, three years later, but it's something that continues to uh, have, and, and, and I guess part of the life of the book now that it's produced is that there are other people who are responding to it in other ways. And, you know, you using it in your church or Sabbath school group or whatever uh, is another way, another chapter for the book. And that's the beauty of the process. But for the purposes of creating the actual physical artifact of the book, you have to call time and put some covers around it. And uh, But really, the, the ideological impetus was what can Adventist faith contribute to this issue beyond ourselves? And, you know, I think we share the belief that when we experience express, explain and hold our beliefs at their best. They are something that has the potential to change the world and to speak meaningfully into the burning issues of our day. Yeah, in, in some way also what comes to my mind, I think about that we gave very brief uh, or broad instructions our instructions were something like we were telling the the uh, the contributors they could draw either out of Adventist doctrine, uh, Adventist heritage, biblical passages that Adventist Christians find uh, they treasure, or or theological reflections that Adventists engage in, and see if that would be a resource for for anti-racism and so it it it, mm. uh, it gave them freedom to actually locate where they found the best resources and that helped to get the kinds of contributions we were able to receive which which were strong mm. Murray, could i ask you you're an academic um and could i ask a sort of tenure track style question, which is how much it just my, my own lack of ignorance how, and lack of knowledge on this. How much does this overlap with your own work already? Was this on that was this part of your scholarship? Is this a special act of service you're doing for the church that's separate from what you do in a scholarly fashion? Do you mind me asking that? Uh, oh, no, thank you. That's a good question. Yeah, it, this is definitely in line with, with my scholarship. In fact, a part of, part of my own journey at the, at the doctoral level, when I was at Claremont School of Theology, I wrote a project 
for my uh, doctor of ministry that dealt with Adventist um, publications and to see how they addressed contemporary moral issues in light of 9-11. And so whether the official publications recognized the intersection of, of political, theological, economic, and uh, social uh, and ethical issues, and were they treating ethical issues more robustly? And, and so because I did a doctor of ministry, uh, one of the things that they kept telling me more, you got to make this less theoretical and more practical. And so we, we argued and negotiated until finally they agreed that what I would do that would be the practical piece is write it as an example moral issues article. And so uh, I did. Uh, it was it was a part of the dissertation project, but subsequently it was published in Spectrum magazine in 2008, uh, dealing with uh, the United Church of Christ call for a sacred conversation on race after the dust up between Senator Barack Obama, who was running for president at the time, and the Reverend Dr. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah Wright, mm -hmm. who was a revered uh, um, preacher, often would be on the Faith and Values channel on Sunday as uh, one of the preachers or the Hallmark channel. And so, you know, it was it was amazing to see how immediately the uh, more popular media turned against Reverend Wright, even the faith sources. But his church did say, hey, this is an opportunity to have a, a sacred conversation on race. So I started there and I've, I've continued to be... Uh, uh, engaged in this kind of thinking, uh, the role of the black church, the role of, of the Adventist uh, faith community uh, with respect to social justice issues more broadly, but race also as one of those issues. Mm. Mm. As somebody who for years lived on the South side of Chicago when state representative Barack Obama was my re representative there in uh in my neighborhood living in, living in Hyde Park not far from the Obamas when when he just represented us in the in Springfield um I'm very familiar with Jeremiah Wright and that was really terrible what happened so this um overlapped effectively you didn't feel like you were having to take a hiatus from the work you do uh professionally to do this service for the church did you know did it help uh, do you think some of your work so far on this had contributed to you knowing some of the people that you wanted to ask? Um, you know, like how how did that list? You know, like do, are these all people you one or the other of you knows personally? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, in in a sense, this does extend. In fact, the title of of my uh, article and Spectrum back in two thousand and eight was entitled answering the call for a sacred conversation on race and hoping that that could launch a conversation within Adventist Christianity. And it, I guess it took uh, Nathan Brown to really, I think, give some volume to that. And I'm grateful for his inviting me and encouraging me to uh, co-edit with him. And it's been a blessing. W one thing I, I had, I guess part of it was uh, you might notice there are a lot of Claremont graduates that are, are a part of this, uh, the, the contributors. So I knew what we were getting in the Claremont School of Theology. It's a Methodist seminary and very much on the progressive side. So some of the voices I, I knew from there, uh, but they had been engaged in this conversation with me along with some others. So yeah, that, that was a part of it. But one thing Nathan and I had agreed on, we wanted to go broad. We wanted it to be not a conversation that was in the American context of, of the black-white race problem, but, but to see what does it look like in Asia? Uh, what does it look like in Africa, mm. in, the, in the Caribbean, uh, uh, the islands? What, what does it look like in Australia? How, how can Europe and, and South America contribute to our understanding of this uh, social 
mm-hmm. uh, scourge and, and the phenomena and how it manifests itself globally. And so we we put our heads together. I think Nathan uh, g- gave as many new names to me as I may have given names that he al- already knew. We knew a lot of names that also kind of overlapped. And so I think uh, we were all better enriched by by making a broader network of Adventist thinkers across the globe who are socially conscious and recognize that our faith is uh, the main tool we can use to not only get a sense of, of the, the manifestation of a social ill, but also offer an antidote. Oh, that's beautiful. I did, I mean, I always look, you know, again, before I read, I looked and was like, uh-huh, uh-huh, I do see the gender uh, parody going on here. I appreciate that. And was and it's not just like a couple of people that you managed to, I've definitely been part of collections where I'm like, I know that um, you asked me because you don't have any other women. That's fine. Um, I will take advantage of that opportunity for a platform for my voice anyway. But uh, I really could see here that that you all had 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 made sure that you had all sorts of representation there. And that it's I don't think I've seen very many books, period, of any kind that are this intentional with the range of representation that's going on here. Um, and that's, and it's not a huge book. I mean, Nathan, you wrapped it up nicely. You know, it's not, it didn't, it didn't go get overblown, you know, doesn't get into the three hundreds of pages. Um, that's when my students start balking, um, <laughs> at, at reading something, but you know, so you, you did well to get like within a finite, amount of of people um this kind of diversity that is able to actually say something truthful and useful and not parochial or just it's off over here in this corner or having speaking to this conversation yeah yeah and, and nathan was intentional about about gender parity go ahead nathan uh, it's nice when people notice that because that was very p- part of our intentionality and in pulling it together and to be aware of some that that this conversation was better with a diverse range of contributors uh Maury and i could have written the book between ourselves but it would have been a substantially different book uh and it would have been a much uh, it would have been a more limited book now it might have still been valuable and it might have still said some important things but it was not a, a project like this i think almost demands this kind of broad uh, engagement mm-hmm. and contribution mm-hmm. because it is such a large and complex issue uh, or set of issues and we can't, you know, none of us have the heads or brains big enough to uh, to really take that on. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't sit down and write a book on some of these topics uh, but and, and they can be really valuable, uh, but... I think that this project needed to be what it became. Uh, and even our initial invitation for 12 people to contribute, it grew to 20 over over two years. And that was, it, it was a better thing at the end of that process than it would have been otherwise. And I think that's a sign of something that's healthy, um, that, that has that kind of growth to it. And I hope that, um, you know, the most recent contributions were received within just a few weeks of it being published and um yeah that was other Ah. people responding to different aspects of it as well yeah and we we also had other women who weren't able to write but initially they were going to but because of the circumstances of their uh, life they had to bow out so uh you know, it. We aren't even capturing as far as we had cast the net, uh, but we are. We're happy for the contributions. That's all right. There's even more women than this. These aren't <laughs> the only women. It turns out. 
That's great. That's all of those people are. And I think that's something that this book can provide as well is a, a longer, deeper bench of resources for people who are looking for those. You know, there might be some of the same usual suspects that we kind of see writing or thinking about these things. And then a book like this can say, hey, there's a ton of people, you know, that are that are thinking about this or writing about it in ways that are effective. So hmm. um, that's part of the joy of a, of a book uh, that has all of these different voices coming at it from different ways. Um, I, I guess we talked a little bit already about your, um, you know, the, the, the murder of George, George Floyd being part of, you know, the, and the aftermath and the, you know, the, the protests and the calls for justice that went on in our country and around the world, really. Um, being some of what made you think about the need for Avenus voices and to talk about this. And so I, what is it that you hope for this book in the long, in maybe in the longish run? And uh, what kinds of, of difference do you hope it makes? Um, maybe what is its little niche argument approach that might be a little different than um, other books that could be written on race or Adventist theology or that sort of thing. Um, do either of you have, I, I don't know if you want to start Nathan and then Mari, you um, add on your, your voice too about what you hope for. To me in the biggest picture, this opportunity, this, I hope that this book sets a standard for what we can add to the world when we speak from the best of our Adventist faith and theology. I think that uh, we have been hesitant in the past to speak, to say anything about anything much other than a pretty narrow focus on what we would traditionally call evangelism. Uh, and I think that I, I think that we probably can expand our definition of evangelism to if we have good things to say to the world, you know, good news to share, um, that that is speaking into the things that matter to our societies and to our culture. Uh, I think this book is somewhat pioneering in saying, if we take, our, take what we believe seriously and then we say it in a way that is really does the hard work of engaging with the culture around us, we have meaningful contributions to make. And I think you know, this is kind of the big picture that I hope that we can you know, uh, kind of model how we can step out into the world carefully. And uh, the afterword in the book is a great example of that um, and um, that draws upon the experience of um, Dr. John Webster and the church in South Africa and responding in the aftermath, you know, or responding to the invitation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa uh, to, to say, well, how does our church... How does the Adventist Church respond to this issue? And you know, I don't think anybody will argue that it's a perfect statement, but it's a it's a valuable statement, a powerful statement, and a unique statement that only Adventists could make. And it's part of the public record of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, and we repro we reproduce that statement as full in full as well as as an afterward to the to the collection as well as kind of a, an exegesis of it mm. uh, from Dr. Webster and his involvement uh, and the process of consultation and the shortcomings in that process, and the, but also the possibilities of that uh, of, as an act of confession, both a confession of wrongs done and mm. a confession of truth believed and championed. And I, I think that, that that was one of the later pieces to be added to the book, and I think it's such a, a valuable thing because it grounds it as one example of, of doing this in the real world, mm. uh, in, the, in a historical context. And in some ways, for many of us, South Africa and the experience of South Africa is somewhat removed from ours. And so to use a, world, uh, a real world example that has at least some geographical and historical distance from, it, from ourselves gives us a little bit of space to just reflect on that kind of from a safe mm -hmm, distance mm -hmm. um, at the same time as saying, well, what would that look like if we were engaged in something like that in our context, in our culture, in our society? And I think that that's, 
to me, that's the big invitation in this book. And of course, the the focus on the topic of race and racism is vitally important in and of itself. And I'm not trying to diminish that focus of the book, but I do like that big overarching uh, sort of call to church to speak to the world in ways that matter and that we can do that in a, in uni- in a uniquely Adventist voice and, and that that actually can be really appreciated by people. And some of the res- best responses we've had to the book so far have been people who are coming at it that I might not expect to really engage with it to the degree that they have, but all of a sudden they are hearing a voice that a tone of voice that they might not have heard before from the church, but are saying, "Hey, this actually matters in the world," and and imagine you know just kind of catching people's imagination and saying, "Hey, we can actually speak and be in the world in different and engage kind of ways." Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I think it's less about an argument that will be made that lasts and more about a new way of thinking and resourcing how to construct theology. So uh, Mm. in one sense, this book puts on the table that theology should actually engage with the lived experience of, of, of individuals. And we kind of maybe as a denomination have been late to catch up to what practical theology is We've been doing a kind of applied theology, namely let the the biblical scholars and the systematic theologians tell us what the theology is and what we're to believe, and now let's go apply it in the world. When in fact, theology doesn't only come from the top down, it it comes from the bottom up, that God Mm -hmm. is working in the lives of people and in the history and, and social groups and out of that, we need to attend and reflect, not just out of scripture. And so this is kind of a model, I, I would hope, for the future of Adventist uh, thinking and, and the way we engage with our, our, our ways of doing theology to realize one of the major sources of theology, yes, is scripture, but another is the lived experiences of people in this world right now. If the spirit of God moves in people, that's theological work. And Mm. if the spirit of God is moving in movements against people, that is the work of God. We have to study it, we have to reflect on it, and we have to bring it in conversation with our sacred sources and traditions and see how it helps us rethink and and refocus. And so I think that this book really is is groundbreaking in that sense. Thinking about uh, finishing up here, our time together in the in the long run, um, we do. We I would be interested then in what are the different sort of categories you've mentioned. You let people you you told them that anything that speaks on uh, theology, heritage, kind of particular uh, ideas and their own expertise that weigh in on this. But as you sit back and look at the book and as you were organizing it, what are sort of the categories that people are speaking to um, in those practical theologies that Mari's talking about? What, what are the areas or the themes? Um, if I were coming into this without knowing uh, that, that I might be expecting to see here. Maybe Mari, you can, you can talk to that. Like what, what, what things, what are the elements of practical theology that are showing up here? I'll think I'll I'll bring some in that I I really like. I think I'm thinking about Mark Carr and his book, uh, Redemptive Storytelling in a Post-Truth Adventism. He's he's looking in the lived communities of conversations that Adventist Christians have as a source of 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 what God can be telling us just in in the way we tell stories redemptively. Uh, Herma Percy kind of does something similar when she talks about addressing the elephant in the Adventist pew. So she, you know, how do we, how do we listen to what people are saying in the congregations and, and resource that out? Uh, Jean Shapajic is uh, giving these kind of personal testimonies and helping us to think of the way in which 
uh, our own personal experiences reflecting on our location as Christians, as Adventist Christians, and being in someone else, in a in another community, a, a community where maybe our parents have migrated to, and coming face to face with some of the challenges of whoa, I thought we were one family, and now I'm seeing that I've been othered. Right, so that's mm. one of the themes you're going to find from different. Uh, different um, authors. And then some authors are just dealing in our our, our revelation passages, uh, the identity, the Adventist identities that we have found in Revelations 19 and, and, and Revelations 13. Uh, so dealing with the apocalyptic uh, narrative that has so defined uh, Adventist thinking about who we are. And you're going to see that theme running through as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. What about you, Nathan? What are some of the themes that stand out to you? One of the interesting things of putting together a collection like this is simply how you arrange them. You get, tw- in this case, 20 pieces and say, what, how do you sequence them? And how do, they, how do they bounce off each other and interact with each other? And is there a logic to how you'd get through this? And in the introduction, we kind of suggested a, some some different ways of putting it together and of course the beauties of a collection like this is you don't have to read it from start to finish and you don't have to read it all before you've got some really important material from it uh, but when you're putting you know from the editor's perspective when you're putting it together you need to start with page one and you need to choose one chapter to put on page one and one chapter that's on page 15 and one chapter that starts on page 220 and so we kind of, in looking at it, basically conceived of it as a journey from the familiar to the unfamiliar. And so it begins with the Hebrew prophets and moves into the New Testament world, uh, into the ministry of Jesus and the the identity of Jesus and spends a bit of time in uh, rereading some passages of Revelation that are well known, uh, even you know Claudia Allen's chapter on the three angels uh, things that are distinctly Adventist in some of those ways, uh, or you know, or that we've claimed in those ways at least, uh, but that are very familiar. And then we move into some Adventist history, um, and Michael Campbell, uh, Matthew Corpman, and to a degree, uh, Kendra Holoviak Valentine's piece uh, all fit in that kind of you know, claiming our Adventist heritage in responding to the, looking at how we've responded in the past and how we might respond today. Then move into, I guess, some more practical things, some storytelling, some, uh, again, lived uh, theology, and then also address some of the practical aspects of what it might mean to respond to some of these issues in the world. And, uh, you know, how do we respond politically? How do we respond ministry from a ministry focus? And then uh, moving again, and I, I've I said to my mum when I gave her a copy for Christmas, um, which is probably the slackest Christmas present ever to give them a copy of a, a book you've made at work. <laughs> <laughs> um, you don't have to read it all because it gets harder to read the further you get through it and more complex and perhaps more, uh, more unfamiliar. And I was really impressed when she told me uh, a little while later that she had actually read it all and... Um, that she'd, she'd got through it and um, had really appreciated it and even recommended it to some of her uh, friends at church, some of, some of the ladies that she was in a, in a group with. And so uh, as we get towards um, some of the more, I guess, philosophical and theoretical, uh, you know, a look at post-colonialism and some of those kind of uh, really deep engagements with this topic uh, in the last couple of chapters of the book, but then I really like that, you know, for as dense and as complicated and as difficult to read, I think it's the longest chapter in the book, uh, of, as Hans Gutierrez's study is, he finishes with a very simple reading of one of Jesus' parables about the pearl of great price and the inestimable value of every human being and how that is should be transformative of how we engage the world, how we engage some of these really big ideas and complex issues and of course then a practical application in the afterward as that we've already mentioned with 
John Webster and his experience of actually doing this work in a in a real world setting of historical South Africa. So it's a journey. And we've sort of, I'm, one of the things that impressed me was how well it came together as that kind of journey to take the reader through. Um, it demands work. There's stuff in it that is confronting and difficult as a topic like this demands must be the case. You know, we can't do this in a soft and fluffy way. We have to make, we have to do the hard work and we have to confront some really uh, challenging and confronting things. And that's, that's what the topic demands. Yes. In fact, let me just say one thing about Hans Gutierrez, Gutierrez's chapter, which is probably the most intellectually demanding in the book. What I have found a, probably a, 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 my deepest joy in this larger community is to see how some scholars have so carefully read my own tradition. You know, I was I was delighted how many read James Cone. I read every one of James Cone's books and marked them up cover to cover. And and to have him take on Cornell West and I read a, a majority of the corpus of his work and very carefully and appreciatively and yet have him take it on and take it on with a challenge that made me say, "Whoa, really?" And then at the end say, "I really appreciate I've grown. I've 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 deepened my own both appreciation of West and your critique of West, and uh, yeah. and I realize that this is a safe community to have robust conversations in. At least uh, there are those that have taken the tradition of Black Christianity in America serious, and uh, so it was a delight. I I, I found this to be a, a an enriching experience for me as a person, and I'm so thankful to you, Nathan. I'm gonna say it again, uh, just for the invitation to be a part of this and uh, to have Greg Honus engage with the, the environmental concerns with racism. Ooh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was, an, it was a good turn to, to bring these voices in and to say, hey, we can say something as a community of faith. We not only can follow the discourse, we can join it. Wow. Wow, that's beautiful. I love that. And as a as a as a lay member of this church, um, you know, I I think, and of course, Nathan is as well. Uh, lay, lay preachers in our tradition, but still, we just are grateful for the people who are doing the theological thinking um, from the academic perspective and from the ground up. I've always been influenced by um, since I read it, which hasn't been infinitely long ago um fritz guy's uh discussion about doing theology that was kind of mind-blowing for me like this is what we do this is what the people do it's not what you know someone else does and um the 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 line i read that i don't know if the person whose book i was reading came up with it or if he was quoting somebody else um that the work of god interprets the word of god um, and that it is often, you know, if you're observing the work of God in the world around you, then you are going to be a theologian that is able to sort of think and, and comment and, and do the faith-seeking, understanding thingy, thingy mababi that we say we're doing when we do theology. So I really appreciate that element, Mari, that your, that your, your academic profession brings to this about, I didn't know the difference between applied theology and practical theology until this conversation. So this is, you know, just so wonderful that we have this kind of contribution. So as a, as a person in this church, I'm grateful that there is a book like this that I can be, that I can be proud of, um, that I can be like, wow, look at, look at who we've got doing this kind of thing, that I can give it to uh, people who are not in my tradition and that they'll learn something about Adventist history and Adventist theology and maybe a little more about the gospel, but, you know, in, in the Adventist understanding of that, you know, from reading this, but also they will be poked at and provoked in the best way that the Holy Spirit does it in the prophetic way um, that God uses prophets. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful. And I know I'm going to keep mining it and keep learning from it. You know, I got to do a, do a thin read over when I got the, the files, but there's nothing like a nice 
physical book is there to kind of then feel like you can sync it in and mark it up and share it around with your friends and oh i think it's on page you know that whatever that they said this and so yeah thank yeah, you right. and, and i'll tell you uh, my colleague marlene ferreras in her chapter is is actually helping our community of faith learn about the history of practical theology and pastoral theology that has tried to move from, uh, I say it this way, I used to listen to Evie and she sang a song, what could be said that hasn't been said about Jesus? What could be done that hasn't been done in his name? What can I say to express how I feel at this moment? This is a feeling that's never been felt quite the same. He loves me and that's a brand new story. And that's a theological story. And so we have to treat it as sacred as we do our sacred text. And, and, and so Dr. Ferreras uh, helps us to see how theologians have reflected on this and said, no, it's, it's not that practice comes at the end. We're always in practice. And in that practice, mm -hmm. we're learning about God. And it's more like a hermeneutical circle and not like a, a spiral coming from the top down. And, and so, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, that's cool. Lisa, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Murray and I have had many conversations about this book over the last two and a half years. Uh, so so it's good to um, it's good to have somebody you know just poking us to not just take some of the things for granted but also to appreciate it in some new ways as well. And um, we appreciate your interest and support and your contribution to this contra uh, conversation today. Um, as we mentioned at the beginning, this is the first in a series where we'll be exploring uh, in the upcoming episodes some of the chapters of the book with those contributors and, and some other conversation partners. Uh, thank you for being with us, Maury and Lisa, uh, the, you know, on this particular episode, and uh, we'll have some, both of you back at different points along the way as well. And uh, so look for the upcoming episodes as we really jump into the sub substantial discussion of this topic and you know we've had the privilege Murray and I in editing this book of having the ability and opportunity to interact with some of these contributors and even ask them some of the questions behind what what they've written and why and so we want to share that with you uh, in upcoming episodes so thank you for joining us for A House on Fire and thank you to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices podcast for sharing this uh, as widely as we can. And we look forward to catching you again next time. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear.